Well, good morning. Uh, it is a, uh, a joy to be with, uh, with God's people once again after uh, just kind of a, a short little break. Uh, last weekend, I was thankful uh, that my, my family and I were able to just kind of sneak away for a short weekend as, uh, as Pastor Brad's father-in-law was uh, filling in and, and preaching for us. Um, so I was grateful for that. Uh, but I think even more grateful uh, to be back uh, with uh, our family of, of faith here at, at Lamb of God this morning. Uh, and, and very grateful to be continuing on in, in our series for Advent, uh, which we've titled Hymns of Hope. And what we are doing in this, uh, this series is we are taking a look at these, these sort of songs that arise in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel account as he retells for us the whole narrative of, of both the promise and fulfillment of the birth of Christ. And one thing that I've, uh, that I've noticed as I've been uh, just kind of taking a look at the first two chapters of Luke's gospel account is, uh, is that I think that Luke's gospel is the one that perhaps fits best with the season of Advent. Uh, if you take a look at, at the, other, uh, the other gospels, you'll notice that, that the way that they begin is uh, they're all slightly different. Uh, Matthew begins with this genealogy as he is trying to demonstrate for us the identity of Jesus as both the offspring of Abraham and also this perfect Davidic king that, that would sit on the throne of his father David and reign over Israel. And then after that, he, he jumps immediately in and just sort of wraps up the Annunciation to Mary and, and the, the Nativity all into just a few short verses. If you look at Mark's gospel, Mark doesn't have any sort of nativity or annunciation or, or anything from the, the early life, from the, from the birth of Jesus. It, it just begins with a grown John the Baptist who is in the wilderness preaching and preparing the way for the Lord. And, and immediately following the ministry of John, here comes Jesus baptized and then going out to, to begin his ministry. And then... Maybe the, the beginning of the gospel that you're most familiar with might be the gospel of John. As John begins with this sort of poetic rendering, talking about the word of God that was there from the foundation of the world. Uh, this eternal word that, that was with God, but then mis mysteriously also is God. And then this word takes on flesh and comes and, and dwells among us. But as we begin the church year with this season of Advent, we begin with this, this season of longing, the season of, of expectation, the season of waiting. And I think that Luke's gospel expresses that feeling the most. Because that's what Luke's gospel begins with. It begins with, with this sort of experience of waiting, where first we're introduced to this character, Zechariah. And Zechariah experiences this promise from the angel that comes to him, telling him, you are going to have a son, and not only are you going to have a son in your old age, but this son is going to be this Elijah figure that has been promised. He's going to be the one who will come and prepare the way for the Lord's Messiah, the one who's going to come and rescue and redeem Israel. And to, to only sort of build this anticipation, to build this waiting, we find out that Zechariah is rendered mute for the entire gestation of his son. And then after we hear this promise to Zechariah, 
We also then turn and we hear the same kind of parallel promise made to Mary. As Mary is promised that she, though a virgin, is with child from the Holy Spirit. And this child will be the one. He will be the Christ, the Messiah who has been promised. The one who will rescue and redeem Israel from their sin. And after this, Mary, she she sings a song. This Magnificat that we reflected on last week. Praising God for remembering the humble and the lowly. And Mary's response is this beautiful demonstration of of faith. Faith that is then expressed in in obedience. As as she is this willing servant of the Lord. Willing to, to carry the Messiah. And then we come to this song from from Zechariah today. And and in this song, you can sort of just experience, you can feel this anticipation that is growing. In fact, that's one of the things that I love about Zechariah's words here. It is in these words, the reader is sort of invited into this experience of Israel's longing and waiting and expectation. You get a window into what they've been looking forward to for all of these years. All right, listen again to, to Zechariah's words. He says, beginning in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prof, holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Here, Zechariah, he gives us this picture of what has been at the heart and center of Israel's longing and expectation All of these years. They're waiting for the day when God himself will come and visit his people. And when he does so, he will redeem them. He will rescue them from the hand of their enemies. All so that they can be free to worship him without fear. Worship him without terror of of warfare and strife. Free from, from enslavement. That God is going to rescue them from, from all of their enemies, whether that enemy is, is Rome here as Zechariah sings these words, or, or, or all of the enemies in the ages past, be it Babylon or the Philistines, all of these enemies. Once God comes and visits them, that will be no more. And as Zechariah sings this song, holding his newborn son in his arms, he is seeing all of these promises coming true. Not because John is the one who will exercise this rescue, but because John has been set apart to be the one who will prepare the way for the Messiah who is coming. But what I find so interesting is as Zechariah sings these words of of rescue from Israel's enemies, you'll notice that when he turns in verse 76 and begins talking about the ministry of John, He talks about rescue from something else. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people 
in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God where the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You notice that that Zechariah doesn't talk about John preparing the way for a warlord or a general or a king. He doesn't talk about John preparing the way for the one who will lead the army that's going to rescue God's people. No, he's going to prepare the way for the Lord who is going to bring salvation. And the way he's going to bring salvation is by pointing people to where forgiveness of sins can be found. And the language here, although it's maybe not entirely direct. It, it is sort of evident here because this, those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, you'll notice in Isaiah, that's referring to the region of Galilee. And Galilee actually was a region that was settled primarily not by Jewish people, but by Gentiles. By those who perhaps would have been considered Israel's enemies. And so as you look at this song that Zechariah sings, you get this sense that there is this relationship between Israel's enemies out there, the the evil that is beyond Israel, that is outside, the evil from without, and then that sin and that evil and that wickedness inside Israel. Somehow these two are inextricably linked. In in other words, the enemy out there, those who would do us harm are really not all that different than the wickedness and the evil that is right in here. That just as we need salvation from enemies, those who who would hurt us, Just as we need salvation from those who hate us, we also need salvation from our own sin, our own wickedness. The enemy out there isn't all that different from the enemy that's in here. And the way that God desires to deal with both of those things is through his mercy. It is through the ministry of the gospel, which is all centered in the forgiveness of of our sins. That is the primary way that God wants to deal not just with our sin, but also with our enemies. And and I don't know about you, but when I think of this truth, I'll think about how it applies to me and the forgiveness of my sins, and I like it a lot. It sounds really good. But when I am also forced to recognize that it is also true for my enemies, those who would wish me harm. It sounds a bit more scandalous, doesn't it? We maybe don't like that quite as much. But what we discover here in these words, once again, is that the enemy out there is not all that different than the enemy in here. And the way that God desires to deal with both of those things is through his mercy. Uh, May 2nd, 2011. Does anyone know what happened 
that day. I didn't either. I had to look it up. Uh, that is the day that Osama bin Laden was shot and killed. And, and weirdly, uh, while I didn't remember the date specifically, I kind of I remember that event incredibly well. Um, I was a, a senior in college just about two weeks from graduation. I had already finished my, my kind of my major capstone project, so I was kind of just on cruise control toward graduation, which probably started before May 2nd, let's be honest. And, and there's a couple things that I, that I remember about when that all happened. See, by this time, as you may know, things like Facebook and Twitter and the whole social media craze was, was pretty well embedded in American culture. Uh, but also by this time, things like, like the iPhone and, and kind of all of these devices were becoming far more commonplace. And so it seemed like in the midst of that event, that was the first event that I really, really remember it seeming like anyone who had an opinion was willing to fire it off with very little thought. And, and I remember after that event, it, the strangest thing, that there being this sort of genuinely joyful and celebratory tone to the things that people had to say and comment about that man's death. And not just from the world around us, from, from brothers and sisters in the faith, there was a genuinely celebratory and joyful tone to the things that people had to say. I remember experiencing that feeling myself. And I think about that event, and, and while I'm not trying to suggest that, that perhaps his death was not just, I'm not trying to advocate for sort of a position of, of pacifism. I'm not trying to, trying to say that you know, the military is evil or anything like that. But what I am asking, what I was asking myself, and what I want to ask us, is the death of an evildoer, is that a cause for celebration from God's people? Is that a reason for us to, to rejoice and give thanks? I, I, can, I think of these words from, from Ezekiel chapter 18. God says to Israel, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. And this is the, 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 these are the words that really strike me. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord? and not rather that he turn from his way and live. You see, what I think Scripture proclaims to us again and again and again is that the way that God desires to deal with us, the way that God desires to deal with human sin and evil is according to his forgiveness. That is what he wants for every human person. That is what he wants for every corner of his creation, that it be transformed by his forgiving all-embracing love. That is not to say that the death of a wrongdoer is not just, 
but it is also tragic. Because the death of an evildoer, particularly an unrepentant evildoer, means that someone died. Someone died having rejected the place that forgiveness is available. This ought not be a cause for celebration. It ought to be a cause for mourning. It ought to be a cause for for pain and anguish. To drive God's people to prayer that the world would turn from their sin and discover the place where God is pouring out and making forgiveness known. Judgment and wrath, that has always been referred to as the alien work of God. In other words, it's not the primary way God wants to deal with us. What God wants for us is for us to know his forgiveness. Right? That's precisely what we talked about two weeks ago, that parable of the sheep and the goats. Right? Judgment is referred, that's reserved for those who would have none of God's mercy. Who, who would reject and deny his forgiveness. But what God wants to give his creation is forgiveness. That's what Zechariah was waiting for. He was waiting for the day when God would come and visit his people and deal kindly with them. To bring back those who had gone astray. To grant them his forgiveness. That's what he was waiting for. That's what John prepared the people for. Right? His message to everyone, to the tax collector and to the Pharisee, was the same. It was repent. It was turn from your sin and live. It was the kingdom of God is coming. And when it comes, forgiveness is going to be offered. So repent. Put to death what is wicked and evil. Turn because forgiveness is here. It's available for you. And it's available for your enemy too. Because the primary way that God wants to deal with our enemies is according to his love. Right? That's what Jesus died to bring about. Now, we talk about the death of Christ. We say that Jesus paid for the sin of the entire world. And if Jesus paid for the sin of the entire world, do you know what that means? That means that forgiveness is available for the entire world. That means that there is no sin that you or I have committed that is outside of the mercy of God. But it also means that there is no enemy too far gone to be rescued from sin, to be rescued from their their wickedness and their evil. No enemy that cannot be reconciled both to us and to God. God desires to deal with us according to his mercy. Right? That's precisely what he did for us. What does Paul write in Romans chapter 5? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Paul says very plainly, we were once God's enemies. Apart from the cross, that is who we were. Reconciliation of enemies is at the very heart of the gospel. When we were God's enemies, God sent forth his son and he transformed enemies, not just into allies, he transformed enemies into his own children. 
That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for the world. And what we are waiting for is we are waiting for the day when God comes and dwells with us. When the entire world is visibly ruled by the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And when that day comes, his love, his forgiveness is going to so overwhelm the wickedness and the brokenness of our sin that it will be entirely cast out. We will be made new. And the one thing that will not be welcome there, it is the great enemy of our God and those who would have none of that forgiveness. But as we wait for that day, as we long for that day, as we expect the coming of that day. We don't just sit idly by, right? We don't just sit around waiting for the day when God will come and exercise judgment upon our enemies. No, 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 no. We as the church, we are called to that same ministry that John the Baptist was called to. We are set apart for the same purpose that he was. We are called to go before the Lord to prepare his way by preaching the forgiveness of sins, by making that mercy of Jesus known. We're called to go and and to live by those words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Right? You remember what he said. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We're called to go. To to love our enemies because we know that the enemy out there, their sin, their wickedness, it's not all that different than the sin and the wickedness that's in here. We're called to go and and love and, and pray for our enemies. Pray that the Spirit would work in them, that they would be reconciled to God in the same way that we have through the cross of our Savior Jesus. And that by being reconciled to God, we would also be reconciled to one another. That's what we want, not only for God's people, but what we want for the whole world. We go, we love, we pray. We even willingly lay down our lives for our enemies because we know that our God wants to deal with them the same way he deals with us. According to his love according to his mercy. He wants the whole world to know the path of salvation through the forgiveness of our sins. Amen?